You're listening to Crosspoint Community Church in LaGrange, Texas podcast. To learn more about Crosspoint Community Church, including service times and how you can connect, please visit crosspointchurchtx.org. Thanks, worship team. Well, Happy New Year. All right, we need to get some coffee into some of you, something. Hope you all had a wonderful Christmas season time break with your family and friends. And as a time filled with uh, new traditions, old traditions, all kinds of fun stuff. Hopefully you were able to do that. As I've gotten older, uh, the seasons of life with kids, I don't have grandkids. Hopefully I'm a long way off from grandkids. Um, but... Things, the seasons change and the experiences change, but the beauty doesn't, right? When you're able to be with family and friends and all that. So I'm hoping that you had a good Christmas holiday season and had some time that you were able to reflect and to pause upon that. And um, that you are renewed. You have new hope. Maybe you have new resolutions. Some of you set some goals and resolutions. Um, the first service, there was one person that had set a goal and a resolution. Uh, maybe in this one there's more. How many of you have set a goal or resolution and have already failed? Yeah, a few of us. If you haven't been to the gym every single day, you've already failed, okay? Um, but there's all kinds of traditions. One of the traditions that we do at our family is we watch that thing in New York drop. And uh, it happens every single year. And it's kind of cool. It's an expensive little deal. And I thought, you know, wh- why do we do that? One, because we like to get to bed early um, and be done with it and say, hey, it's, it's New Year's. Let's move on. Let's get to bed. And, uh, but why do we, why did, how did that become a tradition? Number one, not just for us, but in, in all. And so, um, studying it up in 1907, New York did away with fireworks, which sounds like a really practical, good idea. And, uh, in the city. So they did away with fireworks for like, how are we going to celebrate the new year? How are we going to let people know? And so they, New York Times and some other people got together and they decided to have a ball that glows and to drop it at the right time. And, and I was like, well, that's kind of an interesting way, but it comes from historically from Britain back in the 1800s. There was a, uh, ships needed to be able to keep accurate time and there wasn't a really good way to be able to do that. And so a ship captain set up along the coasts of Britain balls that would drop every single day at the same time. And so the ship captains could watch those balls drop and then they would set their chronometers on their ships so that everyone would be fairly accurate together on what time of the day it was, which is kind of a cool idea. So it's an interesting tradition that came up. And so we live in a day where we've got the Apple Watch or whatever we've got, and it automatically the chronometer changes for us, and we don't have to think about it. But it does make you think about in the new year, have I reset my watch? Have I reset the watch of my heart and my mind and my soul? And and what are the new year gives us an opportunity to have some hope? Because there are times that the previous year maybe hasn't been the dream year. Or there's been some things in the previous year that maybe caused us to stumble or we struggled over. And so we come into a new year with, with hopes and dreams and ideas of what it could possibly be. And um, one of the biggest selling books at this time of the year is, or sections of books is the self-help and the diet books. Um, they just fly off of the shelf because everybody has new hope that all of a sudden they're going to be skinny or they're going to be whatever. And so we try to do this. And so the interesting thing about all those things are those are things that we do 
do in our own strength and our own power and our own intelligence. And what I want us to think about this morning is actually the flip of that, is for us to understand that the gospel that we're called to doesn't ask us to try harder, but it actually asks us and tells us that the only way that we have success in life through the gospel is through surrender. Not trying harder, but of less surrendering less and being stewards and letting God do what God does. One of the traditions that I have personally is for the last, at least since I was 15 or 16, every single year I write down goals of things that I want to achieve and things that I want to accomplish and do and have in my life. And, and, uh, and, and there's always the ones that you, people traditionally write down of, hey, I'm going to be skinnier, I'm going to get to the gym, I'm going to do whatever, um, all those different things. And But research tells us that 42% of the goals, you're more likely, 42% more likely to reach your goals if you write them down, and then also if you revisit them on a regular basis. And it's interesting to see as I look back through my journals and my stuff of how many things that I even forgot that were goals for myself that came about because I had written them down and then followed through with them like schooling and family and different things like that. And so those are important things to do. But self-improvement isn't necessarily the way to grow in the gospel. Imagine with me if you were dropped in a forest. If you were dropped in a forest and just kind of dropped there, and what the, the quest of being dropped in the forest is, is that you were to walk from one point to the next. They just did just the task of walking in a straight line. Okay, so you're dropped in a forest. You've never been there before. There's not a path set. You've got to create the path. And you've got to walk it. There's no landmarks that you know. You don't have a compass. You don't have a map app. It's just you and your natural instincts. And your task is to walk in a straight line. That's it. It sounds incredibly simple, doesn't it? There's actually been studies, and one study by the Max Planck Institute in Germany, and that's exactly what they did, is they dropped people in a forest that they had never been in before and said, for this amount of distance, we want you to walk in a straight line. And the results were mind-blowing. You guess how many people or what the percentage of people that were able to walk a straight line for the distance that they'd asked them to do? How many of y'all think? Exactly zero. No one was able to do it. Our natural instincts lead us to walk in a circle because we're constantly recalibrating and thinking. And so I thought about that. Many of us, because I've looked at my journals too, and I think, man, that's the same goal for several years now, and I won't tell you what it is, but it could be dieting, getting skinny, I don't know, buffer, whatever you want to call it. Is that we, we continue on these cycles and it's like we've repeated the same year over and over and over again. And that we can look back over several years and realize we've just been walking in circles and never walking the path that God has for us. Especially as we get older, I think as I talk to people, they're like, man, I just wish if I had known this or if I had just done this. And listen, we're all going to have regrets and stuff along the way. But part of it is about being intentional with our life and with the investment that God has given us. What are we doing with the gift that he's given us of life and purpose and education, whatever it is that he's given you? What are you doing with it? So today we're going to be in again a new series entitled A New Me in 23. And it's not about self-help. It's not about pulling your bootstraps up. It's not about reading this book or doing this or whatever. It's truly about, God, as I look at the gospel, as I read your word, 
what is it that you want to do in me that you haven't been able to do before? Because I believe that the gospel is the only solution to the problems in our life. The gospel is the only solution to the areas of our life where we want change and transformation. 99.9% of the things in our life, the gospel has not been, the freedom that Christ offers has not been given to that area of your life. Whether it's your finances, whether it's your relationships, whether it's why you eat or you don't eat, or whatever it may be. The gospel is relevant to those areas of our life. And so this morning we're going to be looking at two different passages. One is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We'll talk about that. And we'll ask these two questions in relation to that. The first question is this, is what shapes you? Does the world shape you or does the word shape you? And when I say word, I mean the word of God. So if you have your Bibles... Or if you don't, it's fine. We're going to show on the screen Romans chapter 12, the first part of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And it says this. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Now, that's an old spelling of mold. It is a correct spelling, but it's an old spelling. This is a Phillips New Testament translation. Okay, so it's a little different way. But this idea is to be pressed in, to be bullied, to let the world set the agenda for how you should look, how you should act, how you should invest your time, your money, your relationships. And so that in such a way that the world presses in on you and that you as a follower of Christ are indistinguishable from your neighbor's. Because you're making the same investments in living your life in the same way that your neighbors that do not know Jesus are doing. And so here Paul, in Romans chapter 12, but also in the passage that we're about to get to in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, wants us to grasp this idea of who and what is shaping us. Now Paul in 2 Timothy is writing to a young pastor named Timothy who... Timothy had been hanging out with Paul for quite a few years and had invested in him. And Paul had now, um, and the church in Ephesus and Paul had installed Timothy to be the pastor, the new pastor of the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a pretty large city in the day. It was over a quarter of a million people. Sorry, I don't usually drink when I'm preaching, but I'm a little dehydrated. I had one of those earlier diets that I didn't necessarily want. And so here we are. Um, and so the, the, the city is a pretty big city. And, and one of the things about the city is this, is that worship was dominated by a cult, a fertility cult of Artemis and or Diana. And so it, it's, it's a, I'm, I'm going to details, but it's a crazy worship. It's a crazy deal, fertility cult, magic, astrology, all this different stuff. And so that was one major Part of worship, but then there was also another teaching that was infiltrating the Christian church, which was called Gnosticism, and it was this secret knowledge. And the secret knowledge that they were passing around, one of the main things was that Jesus was not fully human. That he was an apparition, that he was like ghost-like, that you could see him and he would walk around and he would act human, but he was not really human. Because the teaching of Gnosticism was that the body, the flesh, was evil. So therefore, if the flesh and the body is evil, God himself would not inhabit or incarnate something that was evil, which is contrary to scripture. God created us, the flesh, and he said, it is 
good. Okay. And so therefore not evil. And so in the early church, that was one of the teachings. And so you can imagine this setting, this culture that's going on in Ephesus. Here's a young pastor. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to teach the true gospel that here is what it means to know Jesus and to follow Jesus and to be known by him and to follow him and to love and to care for your neighbors in a culture where a fertility cult is happening and where there's an infiltration within the community where there's a counterfeit gospel. And so what Paul is telling Timothy and is striking hard on him is, listen, you need to be a proponent of the true gospel so that when and teach it so well that when people come encounter with a gospel that is not true, they will easily recognize that it's a counterfeit. And so how do we even train our people that deal with counterfeit money? We don't show them multiple counterfeits. We show them the real thing. And they study the real $100 bill. They study the true 20. They study those things and they know the real money so well that when they see something that's out of context, they immediately recognize that that's a counterfeit. And so here Paul is using that language with Timothy is be such a teacher of the true gospel that whenever something even begins to appear or to think or to look like it's counterfeit, red flags go off because it can lead someone to walk in circles. And not walk the path that God has for them. So here we are in Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. And there's going to be this kind of a teaching of there's leaders that are um, teaching this false gospel. And they're going to be in a little bit later on in the passage. We're going to see those that are Timothy who why he should be teaching the true gospel. Verse 1 it says this. You should know this Timothy. That in the last days there will be very difficult times. Now is that not true? Do we not live in very difficult times? This word, difficult times, carries this idea of, of extremely stressful, of violent, of, of a dangerous, of menacing. It's this idea of wild animals enraged and in fighting with each other. And so here Timothy is getting this idea of the days that he's teaching and preaching, there is going to be chaos in the midst. It's going to be difficult. And so in the culture that he's in, in the world that he's in, it's going to be difficult to teach the true gospel. And that's definitely, those days are still continuing. Verse 2. For people will love only themselves and their money. Man, is he describing our culture? This word lovers of self is a playoff of that word phileo that you've, you've heard of, of this love. We'll get Philadelphia from it for this, this lovers of self. And so he talks about being a lover of self and he describes then the characteristics of what does it look like for us or for them to be lovers of self. Here's the fruit of loving self first. They will be love their money. They will be boastful and proud. They will scoff at God. They will be disobedient to their parents. And ungrateful. Now, isn't it interesting that he would feel like he just kind of slides in and they'll be disobedient to their parents? Kind of feels like he slides that in. But in reality, this is a very important truth is because if we are disobedient to our parents, the ones for the most part who love us and care for us, that are our closest defenders of us. If we're going to be disobedient to them and harmful to them, then the circle, it's so much easier than to be harmful and hurtful in all of our other relationships. So Paul's drawing all that and he says they will consider nothing sacred. They're a lover of their self. It's a misdirected love. And we'll see in a few verses other he's drawing the, the distinction of there's lovers of self and they have the characters of this. But then there's those that are lovers of God and lovers of God are contrary that their life and the fruit of their life is exactly opposite of the lovers of self. Verse three. They will be loving, unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. 
They will be cruel and hate what is good. Verse 4. They will betray their friends, be reckless. Again, if they're disobedient to their parents, friends are easy to throw away. And we know this, right? Friends are easy to throw away. We live in a throwaway culture. We think about food, but it has impacted every single area of our life. They will betray their friends. They'll be reckless. They'll be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. Again, the lovers of self, a misdirected love, these are the fruits of those things. Imagine with me a lover of a self is like a hedgehog. Whenever they feel like they're going to be harmed, a hedgehog balls up. And what does it do? The spikes come out. So any of you have some friends that are really spiky all the time? What are they doing? It's this heart of loving myself and protecting myself over everything else. A love phileo of myself or a phileo of God. Verse 5. So then here's the ultimate result is for us in the world of faith. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Now, one of the things that I think is natural about us is that we are naturally religious. We have something in us that when God breathed his breath into Adam, the Ruach, the Spirit of God, he not only gave us physical life, but more importantly, he gave us the capacity to have a spiritual life. He gave us a soul. And so that from that moment of the fall in the garden, our soul has been empty. We're not in relationship with God. The relationship was broken with Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned. And so for us as humans, there's this, as some have said, there's this vacuum, this hole in our heart and our soul that longs to catch its breath. And that catching of the breath is the spirit of God that enters us and takes residence with inside of us when we say yes to the gift of salvation through Jesus and what he did on the cross. And so in that minute, in that moment when we say yes, the Spirit comes in, it gives us breath and it gives us life. But our natural bent, and that's foolishness, right? The Scripture even tells us that the gospel of salvation is foolishness because it's so simple. But our natural bent and religiousness is to check boxes. Because there's this thing inside of us that says, if I just do enough good, then my good will outweigh my bad. And so we kind of live life, even as Christians. I hear Christians say this, well, that'll count toward my good, or that's karma, or whatever. And all that stuff is, is extra-biblical, non-biblical stuff. Because here's the deal. The gospel is so simple, it trips us up. Because here, here it is. On Christmas morning... There were these presents around the tree at many houses. And at whatever time in the morning, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever at your time in the house, people got up and with anticipation were ready to open up those gifts. Right? Especially the little kids. Okay? And so they run to them. I don't know how it happens at your house. At our house, it goes from youngest to oldest, and we rotate and all that kind of stuff. We're trying to teach patience or whatever it is we're doing. I've seen some families that it's like a free-for-all, right? Like, and it's over in like 30 seconds. And I'm like, let's, let's linger. I've spent a lot of time on Amazon pursuing these presents. Let's have some time. But think about it. This is this morning. And so people are gathered around the Christmas tree, and they're excited about what they're going to receive. And so they go. And then wouldn't it seem foolish if everybody got up and with this great anticipation, everybody looked at the tree and everybody gathered the gifts and they put them around them and they're like, this is your Christmas. And everybody's like, cool. And they don't open them. And then they go Christmas morning. And then the rest of the time, the presents just sit there and are never opened and never used. 
That's how I view and understand that most of us that proclaim the name of Christ, we've received the gift. We, we, we received it and it's there and we, we, we look at it, but for whatever reason, we haven't opened the gift and began to, to use it, to begin to understand it, to begin to, to, to daily go into the box and say, and pull it out and begin to say, oh, wow, I didn't notice this or I didn't notice that. And so a lot of us are religious, we're moral, and we maybe even have said yes to Jesus, and we've received the gift, the box, but we carry it around. And so every morning we're like, hey, thank you, Jesus, and we kind of said it, and then we go about our day and don't ever open up the box, the gift of salvation, and everything that comes forth from the gift that God has for us, and that every single day, what Jesus says is, I want you every single day to come to the Christmas tree and open up the gift just like it's new, because it's it's rewrapped every single morning. It's new mercies and new blessings, and so every single morning you come to the tree and you open up the gift, and you're like, what? Like little kids, like, yes, this is what I've been dreaming of, and they get on their little pony or whatever they're doing. I mean, that should be the enthusiasm with which we receive the gospel truth is that we get something we could never earn in and through Christ. But our natural bent is to carry around a gift and say, look what I got. Then set it aside and then live our life by these scales or by checking off boxes. Thinking, thank you, Jesus, but I still have to earn something. When it's not about earning anything, it's about enjoying what God has given us and surrendering. And that's difficult for us because we're stewards of the gift. We don't even own it. We're stewards of it. And to understand that, hey, God has given us this great gift. Now, how are we supposed to share it? Instead of saying, oh, it's mine. And we hold on to it. So we should then stay away from people that are religious, that give us a counterfeit gospel, that tell us we have to earn these things and do these things or, and all this different stuff. Instead of saying, receive the gift, let's go like be like kids, come to Jesus like little children, and experience the fullness of faith. And here's what I also see. Because of that, too often our faith and our morality are separate. And I don't want to get into politics, but both of your parties are wrong. None of them have them right. And so if we divide on those lines, then that's definitely not the gospel. As a matter of fact, Jesus even tells us that these religious people clean up on the outside, but heart transformation is that. Matthew chapter 23, he says it this way. Can you flip that for me? Matthew 23. There we go. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, which is literally this idea of you put on a mask, you come to church and you put on a mask so you can pretend to be religious, that you've done whatever. And then on Monday through Saturday, you take off the mask or you move from mask to mask. And I think we see this more and more. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have a tendency to do this, too. We have friend groups. And so we do a mask for this friend group and a mask for that friend group instead of just saying, hey, this is (laughs) this is me. The good and the bad. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm growing in Christ, but this is who I am instead of putting on masks. And, and so here, that's what Jesus is saying, is you pretend, you play actors. You're so careful to clean up the outside of the cup and the dish, but you are filthy on the inside. Full of greed and self-indulgence. And so here's what I want you to do. Here, here's the heart of Jesus. Is that he wants you to receive the gift, and in receiving the gift, find freedom. 
so that, because here's one of the things that we've, we talk about, I think, consistently, is that most people don't leave church because of bad preaching. They probably should leave church more often for bad preaching or incorrect counterfeit preaching. But they leave because their feelings get hurt or different things like that. And so here Jesus is talking about, hey, listen, clean the inside of the cup. What's the next verse say? What sorrow awaits you, teachers? Flip for the next one. There we go. You blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup in the dish. And here's the interesting thing is that is not in our own power and our own strength. That's part of the receiving of the gift is that Jesus does the washing. We surrender and say wash. It's like mama gets to do your laundry. Don't go home and tell your mom that I said she's going to do your laundry. But she does it. Jesus does the laundry. And then the outside will become clean too. It's a transformation from the inside that only comes from the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because worship isn't just on Sunday raising your hands and singing songs. Worship is 24-7. And it arises from a changed heart, mind, and will. And an appetite that has an appetite, a heart, a mind, and a will for the things of God instead of the things of myself. What shapes you, what you ingest, is what changes you. And so if the world is what you have put your agenda to and you allow yourself to invest in the world, then you will shape yourself to look like the world, to think like the world, to act like the world. And when you do that, here's what you need to know is in our current culture, what is cool, what is hip, what is in changes now every three to six months. You cannot keep up. There is not freedom in that. Let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. They will then act religious, but they will reject the power that can make them godly. Next verse. Keep moving. Sorry, my clicker has broke, so I'm, we're dependent on somebody else knowing my brain back in the back, which is scary because I've got squirrels up in here. All right, push, push again. Keep going. Uh, that's not it. Go forward, not backward. One more. One more. Does that look right to y'all? There we go. They are the kind, these religious people, they are the kind who work their way into people's homes. This is a military term. They, they carry people away. Okay. They work their way in and they carry, they deceive, they gain confidence, they capture them. They work their way into people's homes and win confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Now let's pause right there because that's like, what in the world? So again, we're in Ephesus and that's made place of worship is the temple of Diana or Artemis. And it's a fertility cult. And so the main way of worship is intimate relationships. That's the main way. And so women are hired to be temple altars. They're part of all this. Are you clear? There's kids in here, so I'm trying to keep it. All right. And so imagine... If that's how you think religion works, if you think that is the truth, if you think that that's what you have to do to earn the favor of God, and then all of a sudden the gospel of Jesus comes, 
And you're like, wait, what, 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 what? This is the gift. This sets me free. I don't have to do these things. I don't have to subjugate myself to this. And you can imagine the freedom that comes. And so women were coming to Christ in droves because it was changing their worldview and changing their understanding. The truth was setting them free. However, so now they're in a community that's loving for them and caring for them. But guess what? There's evil. And so there will be counterfeit teachers who will teach a gospel in such a way that it's just enough truth that the women have heard that set them free. It looks and smells and just enough that they are drawn to it. And so they, what do they do? They use guilt and different things to, to move them in this way and so that they can use them. And so what Paul is saying is like, listen, Timothy, you need to be aware that you have to be so intent on teaching a true gospel that when these women, when people come and it could be new believers, it's not just women. OK, so let's expand that circle. New believers that have been caught up in things that have addicted them, that have caught them in a mindset and, and, and a heart set and a soul set that's outside of the gospel. And now they're learning the gospel, understanding all that it means. It's easy to be drawn away into something of the old. And so here they're being taught and Timothy he's saying, Timothy, please make sure that they know that this is the true gospel. And it's so true to them. They get it clarity that they're not drawn away by false, anything false, or at least it's a red flag question. And they can come to you and say, is this really the gospel? And again, I think this is one of those things that so many new Christians, they say yes to Jesus. And this is on us as pastors and as elders and deacons is helping people understand that, listen, it's not enough. It's it's the beginning to receive the gift. But to not ever open it and to see all that God has for you, you're losing so much. And it's easy to be carried away. Verse 7. So these such women or these new Christians are forever following these new teachings and they're never able to understand the truth. Again, they're coming from one way and they're learning something new. Verse 8. These teachers oppose the truth just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Now, here Paul is drawing a distinction because here's what you need to understand that, that Moses was the voice and the person that brought the Egypt, brought the Hebrew people out of Egypt. So land of slavery and his goal was God had given them the goal to bring them to the promised land. And so what did Moses do? He said, Hey, brother, who was his brother? Pharaoh was his brother. Hey, Yahweh is asking me to bring his people out of Egypt into the promised land. And I need your permission to do this because he did. And the Pharaoh said, no. And he said, how do I even know who your God is and the power of your God? And Moses threw down his little rod that he has and his rod turned into a snake. Okay. It's pretty cool. I don't have that kind of power. All right. And so it'd be cool to have a kind of something like that. So Moses threw down a stick and it turned into a, a deal. Well, guess what happened? Pharaoh's, Egypt, Pharaoh's Egyptian magicians and astrology team was Janus and Jambres. And guess what they did? They took their rod and their staff and they threw it down. And guess what happened? It turned into a snake. Here's the interesting thing. When you read back through that is everything that Moses, through Yahweh, the different things that he was able to do to convince, to hopefully change the heart of Pharaoh to let the Hebrew people go, Janus and Jambres were at some level able to replicate it. So here's the warning for us. Satan has powers that look so like 
can so counterfeit the gospel that it so looks like the gospel that you can be drawn to something that is truly false. And so that being in study and community and in depth with God's word is important because it's so easy to be led astray by the glitzy, by the glamour, by the whatever. And Paul is saying, listen, Timothy, don't focus on the frilly stuff. Focus on the word of God. Verse 9. But they won't get away with this for long because the truth will win out. Someday everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Janus and Jambres. The truth wins out. So the first question, are you shaped by the world? Second question, are you shaped by the word? Let's look at the second half of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. But, so don't be pressed in and shaped by the world, but, all right, let God remold your minds from within, a new mind. So that with this new mind, you may be able to prove and practice the plan of God for you is good and meets all his demands and moves toward the goal of true maturity. Only the gospel offers the radical solution necessary to change us from the inside out. It's the only thing that can change us from the inside out. Second Timothy 3.10. Go back to that. Not back, literally, like back. There you go. One more. See, my brain is a squirrel. But you, Timothy, certainly know. All right. Now, one of the things we talk about consistently is knowing is not intellectual knowledge, but it's experiencing knowledge. It's not just teaching swimming. It's jumping in and swimming. All right. And so here Paul is drawing that image for Timothy. And he's saying, you know, because you've experienced with me. It's not just something that that's just intellectual. You've seen it. You've practiced it. You've been able to live it out with me. And I'm a, a mentor, a model for you. So but Timothy, you know what I teach how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith. You know my patience. You know my love and you know my endurance. Next verse. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know about how I was persecuted in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Verse 12. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, one of the things we have a tendency to not talk about in church is that if you decide to say yes to Jesus and allow yourself to not be transformed by the world's agenda as much or at all, and you begin to be transformed by the word of God and make your decisions and make your life agenda and the path that you're walking according to what God wants from you, then you will suffer persecution because everyone else in the world stands in opposition to you. And so if you begin that journey, you will suffer persecution. And so here's what Paul is telling him. When you suffer persecution, be reminded of the fact that you saw my patience, you saw my persecution, you saw me walk through those things, and that there is hope, and there is hope at the end of the road. There's maturity there. You can get through it, not in your own strength and your own power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, but also know that others have walked the journey and the path and have succeeded. Again, not in our own power, our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it is possible. Verse 13. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. Listen, it's easy for pastors and or self-help people to stand up on a stage and to promote something that's just a little bit counterfeit that is actually promoting themselves and can make themselves wealthy. 
We see it all the time. All of the time. I'm reading stories all the time about where this pastor is convinced that Jesus rode in a donkey, and if he was a pastor today, he would ride in on a $20 million airplane. I mean, if you want to give me one, I'm down with it. But I would sell it. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not to benefit me in that way. Now, will God bless us financially? Maybe. But that is not consistent with Scripture. What is consistent with Scripture is that God himself will show up and care for you. It may be financially, but it may not be. But for us as followers of Jesus, if we're walking this path, there will be persecution. And it will be frustrating. Because as you're walking the path and you're receiving persecution, you're like, hey, that person, that person's gaining. They're getting, they're getting this, this, and this, and this. But here's the question, at what cost? What's the cost? The profit that they're gaining. Verse 14. But you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. He went to Sunday school. His mom, his grandma and his mother taught him. And you know that these people. So here Paul is telling Timothy, listen, the people that you've learned the gospel from are people that you trust. It's Paul, his mom, and his grandmother. And they invested in him. And they wouldn't teach him something counterfeit. And so the true things that you've learned, know those things. And when things get difficult, lean into those that you trust and you know. Verse 15. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they've given you the wisdom to receive salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. All Scripture is breathed by God, inspired by God. Just as God breathed His breath into Adam and gave life and gave soul, it says Scripture tells us that God breathed His breath into it and made it a living document so that every time we read it, that it changes our heart and our soul because it's the mirror of God to us, His words to us. And it's useful. God's words is useful, profitable, okay, to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our life. And it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. As a parent, have there ever been times where you've had to discipline your children and you're like, this hurts me more than it hurts you? But you know that it's the right thing to do? Every time we open up God's word, because it's a living, breathing book. The words of God discipline us and correct us and guide us because our natural bent is to walk in circles. Because persecution along the path of God scares us. It's so much easier to be pressed into the mold and the agenda of the world. But spending time with God's word presses us and changes us from the inside out. Verse 17. And God uses all this teaching to prepare us and to equip us, his people, to do every good work. This passage here, this last little word here, reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, which tells us that we've received salvation. And receiving salvation, God gives us salvation so that he has prepared for us good works. He has a plan. He's not surprised by you coming to him. And he's has a plan and a purpose, and his plan is a purpose that you learn and you're guided by is his word, and you move in that direction. One of my best friends, it's a mentor of mine, he's further along the journey. His dream was always to be a fighter pilot. From the time that he was literally in diapers, his dad had been a, had been a pilot and he wanted to be one. And so he became a fighter pilot, and he was a young man in Vietnam, 
And it was his dream. And he's there. He's like, he's like, Chris, his story is this. Chris, I'm in the jungles of Vietnam and I'm doing what I've dreamed of doing. Everyone in the world wants to be like me. And I'm empty. And I'm empty. I've reached the height of what I thought would define me. And I was empty. But someone gave me a Bible. And in my boredom in the jungles of Vietnam or Thailand, I opened up the Bible. And the Word of God became alive and active to me. The first time I ever read it. And it changed me. And in those few days, I gave my life to Christ. And this is a man who has mentored me and spent a lot of time with me and invested in me. And I, he's, he's, my, he's my Paul. And so whenever I go through things and I have questions and I struggle with things as a person and as a pastor, I can see Jim and I know I can see him going, hey, you know my path. You know my faith. You know my journey. You know my struggles. And so there are others around us and each one of us need Paul's and Timothy's in our life. To know that, listen, the world wants to press you in to its look. But we don't want to be shaped by the world. Because the greatest gift has ever been given, we need to open it up and experience it and to be shaped by it and to walk in community together and experience the fullness of the gift that God has given us at Christmas. He's given us a new hope and a new beginning, but it only comes through the transformation of the gospel through Jesus Christ. My prayer for you is that you won't struggle to do self-help this year, but that you'll surrender. That every single morning you'll get up and run to the Christmas tree like a child with a new gift. Anticipating what it is. Because here's the deal. The gift of salvation is inexhaustible. You will never get to the end of it. So every day, run to it and open it up and say, God, what do you have for me today? What do I need to learn today about you that will transform me? Let's pray together. Dearly Father, thank you for the gift that you've given us in Jesus. Father, I pray that everyone in this room has received that gift. If there's anyone here who has not said yes and received that gift, that maybe today's that day. If they would just say yes, Jesus, I need you and I want to begin that journey. Father, I pray for those of us that have said yes and have received that gift, Father, that we just don't set it down at the beginning of the day and go about doing our day by our agenda or how the world presses us in, but that we are walking the path that you have for us and not the circles that we do for ourselves. Father, may you give us the courage to walk your path. May you give us the strength. May you give us the wisdom. May you put a pall in our life that it's walked ahead of us. And that can give us the courage, can give us the wisdom, can give us a mentor to see, hey, there will be persecution. There will be times where it is hard to take the next step forward, but it is worth it. Count the cost and it is worth it. It is more profitable to stay the course with Jesus than to run to the world. Father, may we make the right investment this week in you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Cross Point Community Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this message was encouraging to you as you follow Jesus. For more about Cross Point Community Church, you can find us online at crosspointchurchtx.org.
Have a great week.